Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And on today's episode, I had the pleasure to interview my dear friend, Dr. Im Sanjan, CEO of Conservation International. Sanjan, by my count, is one of the most important leaders in the conservation movement today. We discussed his amazing journey, his unique background being raised in Southeast Asia and West Africa, and his deep connection to nature and the path that he's been on to work on the planet's behalf. We discussed how nature and humans can live in harmony, how Conservation International is working on new groundbreaking programs like irreplaceable carbon research and projects and blue carbon in preserving the world's oceans, key ecosystem preservation and the future of the conservation movement, both personally and professionally. Sanjan has hosted more than a dozen documentaries and shows across PBS, and BBC, National Geographic, Discovery, Showtime, and recently his Vox Media Climate Lab series hosted with the University of California garnered over 20 million views. I am always blown away to talk to Sanjan. I always love hearing his perspective. He is such a beautiful human being and such an important and impactful leader. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. M. Sanjan. Sanjan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Where where are we chatting today? Where are you in the world? Yeah, disappointingly, I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, in my home, where I've been kind of on lockdown since early March. I'm surprised to hear that. I figured they would have, uh, you know, CI would have gotten you out on the road in some capacity. Yeah, you know, I would have thought so too. But look, our teams are working in some really sensitive communities around the world, um, you know, with indigenous communities, with local peoples. Uh, it's just one of those things that I don't want to be the vector uh, and I don't want to put anyone at risk. So it's not so much of me being worried about what I might get, but also me being, you know, a vector for something uh, that I unwittingly transmit into one of the geographies we work in that have been maybe spared. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is, to be honest, you know, we, we're getting a lot done. It's been actually fairly impressive how much we've managed to accomplish in the last, say, four months or so, you know, going completely, um, you know, virtual. Well, I want to hear all about it, you know, to introduce the listeners to you, you're a global conservation scientist whose work spans from genetics to wildlife migration, You were the lead scientist at the Nature Conservancy since 2016. You've been the CEO of Conservation International, which I'm honored to serve on your leadership council. For me and for for my summit partners and for many people of of our you know shared community, you've really been an incredible inspiration and and you know the connecting piece for us to the environment. Well, thank you so much, and I think the feeling is mutual as well. I mean, I have. Uh, personally benefited hugely from getting to know the community better in your community and your network. 
and the and the people that you you know associate with and and love and and create as part of your community. Even in fact, that word community and the sense of community, that itself and that concept of community, which is even more important today in a fractured world for a global organization trying to manage something, you know, in this virtual space, is like front and center. Well, my pleasure. And so you were raised in Southeast Asia in West Africa, correct? Yeah, I was born in Sri Lanka, left when I was about five years old, uh, grew up really in, in, in West and East Africa. You were like, mom and dad, it's time for us to go to West and East Africa. Come on, get your stuff. Pretty much. I mean, I loved wildlife. And the day I found out that we were going to Africa, like that was like unbelievable. I had my little binoculars, you know, getting on a plane. I mean, the whole thing was just unbelievable, magical to me. And I remember that time not as one of sadness for my family. They left the country of their birth and their entire network and everything they had in their home with just two suitcases, right? And um, all we were allowed to take was like my mom's jewelry and five pounds, British pounds, sterling pounds, that was sewn into the lining of my my little um, Paddington Bear coat because no we weren't allowed to take foreign currency out of the country. That was it. And my mom, my dad didn't even tell my mom that he had done that. And like later on, sort of ripped the uh, seams apart and pulled out this this money. But so for them, this huge tragedy for me was just this moment. It was like you know, my gateway drug. Sure. And and do you have any memories of your first like formative experiences up close and personal, either in nature or with animals that spurred this career and this path for you? Yes, but it, I wouldn't say it was spurred a path. I mean, we were just surrounded by wildlife. We had a, a snake on the first day we got there, you know, chimpanzees quite literally in the trees around our home, colobus monkeys, Force elephants. I mean, we had, you know, I would go and catch things and bring them home, all kinds of things from snakes to, you know, little baby um, crocodiles to monitor lizards to parrots, um, which snakes would then come and eat the parrots at night, you know, in these in these aviaries that I built outside. Wait, wait, how old were you when you were building aviaries outside? seven, eight years old. And, you know, we had really cool parrots in West Africa. Um, and at that time, not that rare. And, you know, one very distinct night, I remember a very large spitting cobra getting into the cage and swallowing the parrot as it was squawking, you know, and my dad heard this noise and said, something's going on. We all rushed outside and the noise just suddenly stopped. And he said, it's got it. And I didn't know what he meant. And then we shone the flashlight into the aviary and, and, you know, there was this huge snake swallowing this bird. Did you have other jobs outside of, you know, things connected to animals and flora and fauna? I always had the love for nature, but it was never going to be a job. It was always going to be a hobby. And my parents were very keen and very clear in saying that conservation, the environment, there was no word like conservation that hadn't been out there yet. You know, nature, being in love with nature or, you know, anything like that, that was not a career. That was not a job. That was just a hobby. And I could do it as a hobby. And they, they fostered that passion. They, they bought me books and binoculars and tried their best to, you know, you know, expose me to things, took me to the zoo in countries where we would visit in the UK or wherever. But that was quite literally the words they used were that was for white people. And I know that you, you know, moved to the U.S. to study at University of Oregon, where you got your BS in biology and ecology. So I guess at that point you realized that there could have been a career path. No, even at that point it was it was it was pre med or or it was genetics. So it was research. It was that was what was going on in my head. Um, you know, I I came to the University of Oregon kind of on a you know very last minute ditch effort to get out from where I was and, and, and America always was beckoning to me. My parents weren't very keen going there. So it was, it was really, it was never a career until really grad school. Grad school was what opened the possibility that I could actually make a living out of this. We met and uh, you were working with the Nature Conservancy as their lead scientist. And I think the first time I heard you speak was at Summit at Sea in 2011. Do you recall what you talked about on that stage? I recall parts of that talk, yes. Because the part that I remember the most, the call to action, was you 
walked us so eloquently and beautifully through the natural world and explained the speeding up of environmental degradation and the practical radical approach that would be required to working with all the different parties involved in order to achieve the outcomes we needed. And you said something along the lines of how, you know, the old model of like building your companies, making a bunch of money and then donating that money to a cause was all well and good. But, you know, the environment might not be there for us when we get to the other side. And I I remember leaving your, your presentation with the unique sense that I guess I didn't realize unconsciously that I thought I'd be able to buy my way out. I thought like, okay, well, the oceans rise on the coast, temperatures rise in certain places, but if I'm successful, you know, I'll move to, uh, I'll move to Montana and I'll grow grapes in the new warm climate. I left that talk getting the Band-Aid rift off in a sense with the realization that the temperature rise on the planet would irrevocably change all biology. Tell me about your, your recollections, though. I don't want to just tell you about mine. No, I think that's right. You know, I, I remember being a little bit um, nervous about that talk because it was kind of a big one. And the people who were on stage with me, um, you know, Branson was there. You know, I, I, I remember some of the figures who were speaking kind of in the same block that I was and thinking this was a different audience, but also an audience that I really wanted to try and connect with because in this audience, I could see the future of the planet. And interesting, a lot of those people who were there have continued into that mission. And now this has become part of what we do. But you're right. You know, I, I've always thought that what we were doing should not be a niche. It should not be a hobby. Um, it should really be, you know, part and parcel of who we are and why what we do matters. It should be part of every company. It should be part of every government. Uh, it should be part of every community because this is about the air we breathe, the water we drink, the place we live in, the kind of environment we want to have around us and the buffer we want to have around us as well. Because if, if you ever needed a reason to believe that nature has unbelievable power and impact on your lives, you know, just look outside, look at what's happening to the planet today. I want to get into the ever important work of Conservation International and how you perceive it in this once in a lifetime moment that we're going through. So Conservation International is about 35 years old, and it was created on a very simple premise that people need nature, that fundamentally, you know, the jobs we have, quality of life we enjoy, the water we drink, etc., ultimately, you know, uh, ties back to nature. And, and protecting nature in our own enlightened self-interest is really about protecting ourselves. It was different right from the beginning because... It accepted this idea that humans were part of nature and not separate from it. I think all the other conservation organizations up to that point that I had come into contact with who are doing, who were doing and are doing unbelievably important work, always sort of had this idea that there are, nature needs to be protected from humans and we are kind of separate from it and we need to identify those places and just sort of protect them. Right? That was sort of the evolution of conservation and how it sort of came about. But CI, right from the beginning, incorporated humans into that equation. For me, coming from the global south, right, not coming from a Western country, that's how I saw the world. I didn't see this strong distinction between where nature ended and human civilization began. We lived in the forest, very literally. And I could understand how for communities and peoples who have lost everything, where governments completely fail, where civil war disrupts their lives, it's nature. It's nature that is the ultimate safety net. It's nature that still provides. And that if we could only tap into that, we would then really be able to make conservation a, a, a fundamental right or a fundamental good as opposed to an exclusive good or an exclusive right that you could only get to after you've dealt with all the other things. You know, we've dealt with healthcare and defense and jobs and whatever you, oh, now let's get to conservation. That was the, the sort of the flip for me. And that's what attracted me to Conservation International because it, it was set up in that, with that mindset. So I came over to the organization about six years ago, and then three years ago, the founder, Peter Seligman, kind of a legendary guy. Most of these bigger organizations have long lost their founders to time. But I had that opportunity. And what I find is an amazing organization working in about 30 countries, 
about, you know, 1,100 uh, team members around the world, a phenomenal board, phenomenal council, and a real sense of community. Still small enough to be very nimble and very agile, but big enough to really exert our muscle. And unafraid, a little bit unafraid of tackling some things. So, you know, 20 years ago, this was the first organization to really want to work with big companies. And, you know, as Peter tells the story, some people quit because of that. Today, all conservation organizations, to some extent, work with uh, the corporate sector. You know, unafraid of going to work in Liberia. That's a tough place to work in, especially when we started working there, which was when Charles Taylor was running the country, right? So, you know, Conservation International always picked on the tough challenges because those are the important challenges to have. Always seen the world from that global South perspective, from the perspective of indigenous peoples, local communities, you know, how do they benefit? and really had humans at the center of the equation. Um, that's what brings me here, and that's what keeps me excited every day. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to us about irreplaceable carbon. Yeah, so irreplaceable carbon, it's a great word. So, you look, it turns out, you know, that, you know, climate change is caused by emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, other things like that. It makes our planet warmer every single year, and that trend doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. It, it turns out that the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere really comes from two sources. The one primary source that we all know is our use of fossil fuels, right? So we burn this stuff, it goes up into the air, it stays around for a long time and heats our planet. The other is from nature itself. When we cut down forests, when we destroy land, when we plow up land, when we get rid of grasslands, when we cut down mangroves, which are forests that grow in the ocean, etc. All of that also sends up a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. And it turns out that if you can protect forests in particular, but other kinds of ecosystems as well, and restore them at scale, 
you could get about 30% of the emissions reductions that we need to achieve in order to meet the, the goals that we set up for at the, during the Paris Climate Accord that every country, except for one or two, agreed upon. Um, you can get that by protecting, restoring, and improving the management of forests. That's amazing to me. Let me, let me put it more succinctly. If deforestation was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. So it'd be like, you know, United States and China right up there at the top, followed by deforestation. And very little money goes into combating deforestation. Most of the money goes into tech, goes into solar, wind, you know, alternate fuels, efficiencies, Tesla cars, all that kind of stuff. All very, very good, all very useful, incredibly essential. We absolutely have to reduce the amount of emissions that we're putting out. We absolutely have to transition into a zero carbon or low carbon economy. We have to find carbon capture mechanisms. But it turns out that we have a carbon capture mechanism right here, right ready, right now, ready to go at scale. And that's your forests. Those are your trees. So what we did was we mapped where these pools of irrecoverable carbon are around the world. What are the most dense sites for irrecoverable carbon? Where do you get the most carbon, you know, bang for the buck if you can invest in certain areas where you can trap uh, large amounts of carbon, protect it in the ground, uh, in trees, um, in mangroves, etc. That's what that's what that is, and and we call it irreplaceable carbon because it's carbon that you cannot you cannot replace in a human relevant timescale. Once you lose it, it's up there. There's no way you can make the math work. So replanting and reforesting is incredibly important. We got to do it at a much, much bigger scale and much more efficiently, but you're going to still lose and it's better to protect than to replant. Much better. It's also cheaper. Well, and Conservation International put out a groundbreaking uh, bit of research on this concept specifically mapping these mangroves and these forests and the peat grasses. In your opinion, do we need to rethink carbon credits? Do we need to reconsider how we think about you know, the value that we're creating for the environment? I, I think so, and I think it's happening. That's the good news. So what we have seen in the past has been a tsunami of investment that's gone into tech, into tech, into clean tech, into renewables, into efficiencies. That's great. It surprised many of us the speed of that change. I drive a Tesla. I would have never, ever imagined that in my adult lifetime, I would have the opportunity to drive a fully electric car that functions so kind of amazing. You can see that kind of change happening and that, that wave of investment is not slowing down. It's not slowing down. If anything, it's gathering real steam. We need to make sure we do the same with protecting these irreplaceable carbon sinks, these, these living pools of carbon, forests, particularly tropical forests, mangroves, peatlands, you know, and, and other, other types of uh, ecosystems. And we need to restore them at scale. It is happening, it's not happening fast enough, and the science on it is, 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 needs to be dramatically upgraded. So a lot of companies today are now understanding the value of protecting forests, and they are getting into this. Um, they're reducing their emissions through recycling, through energy efficiencies, through alternate fuels, which is great. But they're also realizing that there's a gap, a gap that they need to bridge. And they are often doing it through protecting forests or restoring forests. We play a big role in helping them decide where best to use their investments so that not only can they get a big return in terms of carbon, but very importantly, that local communities, indigenous peoples on whose land much of that forest exists um, are the beneficiaries in an equitable way uh, um, of this transfer of wealth. Do you think that your upbringing and your background um, gives you a unique perspective where you're sensitive to these communities that are otherwise overlooked often? You know, I suspect so, but it's a difficult question, Jeff, because, you know, you, you, one never is that introspective about one's own background. Like, I, you know, I don't sit and think, oh, I'm Asian. That's why I really appreciate, you know, Asian food. But that's why you do. You know, my, my one-year-old loves curry, loves curry. 
I don't know why she loves curry, but she does. Now, I ascribe that to the fact that, hey, guess what? You know, I'm South Asian. But it's hard to know this, whether, you know, I'm more sensitive because I have this background or it's just the right thing to do. Um, I suspect it's a bit of both. I spent a couple of weeks with the Warani people in in Ecuador, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And, they, and this was really deep in the Ecuadorian forest. And my experience with them in particular was eye-opening uh, to me. And, um, and so certainly I understand that- well, well, why? Tell us why. Why was it eye-opening to you? I, it, you know, the, the cohesiveness of their society, the, the unbelievable sophistication of the way that they use nature around them. You know, the, you, you know I have it, at my home, I have a, a blowpipe, which I got from one of them as a gift. And, and all the, the very fine, um, you know, pieces of equipment that go with it, the, the little arrows, the fletching, the, the, the I mean, the, 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 the technology that surrounds it is as beautiful and as carefully, carefully thought through as like my iPhone. It really is. And it's, it's exquisitely built for a particular po- purpose, you know? It comes with piranha teeth that you can use to notch the arrows so that the tip breaks when it goes into the skin of a small monkey high up in the tree. I mean, that's like someone's really thinking through the details. You don't have that appreciation for how old these cultures are, how, how exquisitely designed they are by their environment and have designed their environment. And when you watch the rituals, when you watch their use of tools, when you watch their understanding about nature, um, you get this deep sense that as guardians, as stewards of nature, they are unsurpassed. And so for me, from a very practical point of view, as a conservationist, my best allies should be indigenous communities and local people. They're the ones living closer to the source. They're the ones that have the most to gain and the most to lose if nature isn't considered in the right way. I believe it's 13 out of the top 20 prescribed drugs in the world, ranging from aspen to heart disease medicine, use some uh, form of mushrooms. You know, so you have these mushrooms that are growing mycelium in all of these different ecosystems in the world. And it turns out that that's what is helping us live healthier, longer lives. The chemicals um, often that we ingest are a formula made from something that was found in one of these at-risk ecosystems. And uh, something that I did learn inside of the CI ecosystem, actually from Peter, the way he put it to me was that, you know, every indigenous tribe has its own earth operating system that's been built and passed down over generations. And their technologies are no different than our technologies are no different than a bird's nest, right? A bird learned how to make a nest and that's their bird technology. And the other thing that really I appreciated and never understood is there's no it. There's no subjugation of things into generalities. You know, everything has a purpose, everything has a name, and often they find themselves, you know, related in their own narratives, cultural narratives to the mountains, to the trees. They're not they're not separate from them. Their environment is their brothers and their sisters, which I loved. I agree. I mean, I think that's exactly right, but that that realization for many of us comes, you know, sometimes late in life, sometimes never. And I think an understanding of it probably makes us all better humans. And it certainly makes us understand that indigenous peoples, uh, local communities, you know, people who are, again, living on the front lines of nature or right within nature, you know, that, that idea that it, there's no it, that everything has a purpose, everything has a name or a description or a, or a story behind it, you know, gives them the kind of holistic vision that, that most of us are myopic to. Well, and I want to transition to your work on the oceans and blue carbon projects. Love for you to dive in. Yeah. So like, look, oceans, I think that's one, that's an area that, so one thing, Jeff, I just want to go back to and just sort of mention. Please, the, please. the key word that we use with irrecoverable carbon now is this word natural climate solutions. That's gaining a lot of momentum. And that's what we're pushing, right? Natural climate solutions, you know, solutions to climate change that really come from nature. Uh, So transitioning that into blue carbon, in the oceans, Conservation International really has um, a really great team. 
And they've been working in the oceans almost from the beginning of the organization. And it's good knowledge, it's deep knowledge. There are three areas that we're really focused on when it comes to the oceans. The first, dramatically increase the amount of protected areas within oceans. The amount of oceans that are protected globally is minuscule compared to what's on land and just minuscule overall. We think that needs to be dramatically increased. And we, along with a, a few key partners, have agreed to push for 18 million square kilometers of new protected area within the next 10 years. That'll double Incredible. what's effectively there. It's a huge, huge goal. We're well on our way towards trying to make that a reality. The second is we know we need to protect blue carbon. So it turns out that just like forests, some ecosystems in the ocean are really, really good at protecting and, and sucking up and locking up carbon. One of those are coastal forests called mangroves. There are many species of mangroves. They grow around the world. You can see them in Florida, for example. But the real heart of mangroves is in Asia and in, in Brazil and Colombia, in, in Bangladesh, in, in Indonesia, in the Philippines and countries like this. And mangroves, you know, acre for acre, can store up to six times more carbon than a tropical equivalent tropical forest system can. So they are the densest, um, densest packaging or densest uh, aggregation of carbon you can find on Earth. It is incredibly important to protect them. Uh, and they're great for coastlines, they keep people safe, they are nurseries for baby fish, they have loads of other co-benefits. So protecting global mangroves uh, and restoring them at scale is sort of goal number two. And goal number three is really cleaning up the fisheries industry and to that extent, the aquaculture industry as well. Promoting good aquaculture done in the right way. Uh, it's very important for people and their livelihoods around the world and for protein. And then cleaning up fisheries. Um, a lot of fisheries, particularly on the high seas, is done with slave labor or what is very close to slave labor. It's probably the, the, the most flagrant violation of human rights and uh, labor laws. It's the closest you could come to essentially participating in something that's been harvested by slaves when you go and participate in certain kinds of fisheries. And it's a murky world and we need to clean it up. And we are taking a very strong position on that and working with some very responsible companies to really clean up that supply chain. There's no way, God's green earth, you should be going to a restaurant or you should be going to a store and picking up fish and thinking this fish could actually be coming from a, a, a ship that is completely, um, except for the captain and maybe two or three other people, crewed by, by indentured servants or by slaves. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I think about the environmental movement historically, it's been a white issue. It's been, you know, something that, you know, has had primarily white leadership in the space. And it's also, you know, when you look at the donor pool too, and those that have gotten themselves connected to it, whether it's influencers or celebrities or, you know, billionaires that could underwrite this stuff. I found in my research for this, an article on you from 2008 from Time Science titled Changing the White Face of the Green Movement. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. You know, we're in this really unique moment with the movement for Black Lives. I want to know, like, is, is, are you seeing change? I think that some of these companies, the Walmarts, the Unilevers, the Apples, the P&G, the Starbucks of the world, for the most part, are actually ahead of the consumer. In fact, in some places, they're even slightly ahead of the environmental sector. So 10 years ago, we were standing outside screaming in, and they wouldn't let us anywhere near the lobby. Five years ago, they invited into the lobby. Two, three years ago, they took us upstairs. Now we're right in the C-suite. And it isn't, yes, you can say, all right, well, isn't that a bit of greenwashing going on? And I'm sure there's some of that. But for the most part, at the CEO level of these companies, you are seeing a real transformation you're seeing a a change in attitude and mentality about their brand, their role, the long-term nature of their business, and what they, you know, sort of owe their consumers, their own people, their own team, and their own grandchildren. You know, Alan Jope, the CEO of Unilever, said to me, you know, I was walking down the beach, and he said his kid was pointing out all these things on the beach, saying, Dad, you made that. Dad, you made that. And he said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the CEO of Branded Litter. When you see Doug McMillan on stage from Walmart talk about his children and what they're expecting of the world, it's completely real. There's nothing calculated about that. Today, just today, just coincidentally, you know, I was on, the, on, the, on a phone call uh, with David Taylor, the CEO of P&G. You know, you look at P&G and the stance they take on social issues, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You know, he's a Midwestern company based in Ohio. And it's run by an engineer from North Carolina who grew up in the company and spent, I don't know, 30 years of his life in the company. They're a quiet brand, but they do some amazing things. And in terms of their brand stance on things like equity and, and, and race and now on the environment, I think in some ways they are a little bit of ahead of the consumer. I find that really exciting. They're certainly ahead of the government, Right. They're really ahead of most governments. So I, I like that no moment now. I don't think we can let up. I need to think we need to accelerate. And what's happened, we need, now let's pivot to race and this issue that you brought up about the brown face and the green movement or, and the Times article. If you, if you look at that and look at the way these companies have very quickly said what they do not find acceptable anymore, they can read history. They do not want to be on the wrong side of the history. You know, P&G that's, is a company that was, I think it was founded in like 1837. They fully expect to be here for another 100 years. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And you might as well build a company as if you're building it for the long run. I think the most dangerous companies are the young ones, the startups, the ones that want to make a buck very fast, that still haven't had that experience of history, that think that they're going to change the world overnight just because, guess what, they're good. And they're young. And because they're young and they're good, they're going to do the right thing. I think history is showing us right now that they haven't been always very good. And they're getting caught a little bit on the wrong side of history. 
So it's a very amazing space to be in. Now, on the conservation side and the environment movement, man, listen, that has been a really big hurdle to jump. I've had four job interviews, four times in my life, where I have been told, sometimes using these exact words, sometimes in code, that I don't fit. Listen, I'll I'll tell you a true story. I applied once to be the head of Asia Pacific region for a a big conservation organization. After several phone calls by well-meaning people, they sort of convinced me that A, I had a better job and B, I didn't fit. That's pretty hard to believe. And it's even harder to believe when you realize that they ultimately gave the job to a great person, but exactly, exactly what you would have prayed wouldn't happen. You know, the hardest thing about racism for me, and believe me, I've I've had such a privileged life with such great parents and such great privileges that I haven't had to deal with the stuff that a lot of people, you know, have to deal with. But for me, it makes all of us slightly suspicious of the motive of others, even if those motives are well-meaning. The problem is I can't give them the benefit of the doubt. Sure. And they might not be even conscious of their biases. You know, I'm sure that they were, for the most part, well-meaning if you were to give the benefit of the doubt, but that doesn't change the systemic nature of what has gone down for generations and will likely continue to, even with this great, you know, awakening that's occurring right now to the, you know, constant reality for so many people that are non-white or non-binary. This is such a sensitive topic that I, I, I don't want to let go of it without saying that I am guilty of those biases at times too. You know, that in my mind, there's a fit for someone who's a conservationist. And the interesting thing is the guys at Summit, guys like you or Elliot and others, don't actually fit in my mind, right? So for me, the fit is, you know, do you fly fish? Do you bird watch? Are you out there in the outdoor world? Do you love nature? Can you, you know, tell the difference between, you know, I don't know, an African elephant and an Asian elephant? I don't know what it is. But there's this sort of, sort of myth in my own mind about what a conservationist ought to look and sound like. That's even more difficult. So I have to break those myself in order to, you know, allow me to be able to see allies in places um, that I might not always see. And the truth of the matter is I could teach you to fly fish in one day, but your life experiences, where you were born, how you grew up, you know, the, the, the race, the nationality, the gender, the issues that you dealt with, the, the, the burdens you bore, those are lifetime experiences I could never teach. And that's what we need to be able to bring into our tent. And so it's really important. I think conservation as a field is the least meritocratous field I can possibly think of. For a field that is so keen on protecting biodiversity, most of which, guess what, is in Africa, Asia, or Latin America, we are incredibly poorly represented by kind of the global South or the equatorial you know, parts of the world, especially in, in senior, senior leadership. And it's, it's always lonely when I'm there. Now, I know I benefit from it. By being the only brown guy, I get to be on stage. You know, I, you know I, you, I, I get that. I really get that. But it gets old, and it gets old really fast. One of the things I did want to ask you about, because to your point, you did interview for those four different positions. And this is like, you know, your first time being the CEO of the organization. You know, I imagine that's a a transition in skill, you know, being an inspirational thought leader, being a scientist, which is an entirely different field that you had to dedicate a decade plus of your life to be good at, I imagine, let alone be great at, right? The theme of the podcast often is entrepreneurial and would love to hear, you know, what are the things that surprised you? What are the things that, you know, you're still learning into? The thing that surprises you most is that you always think you're coming in with a clean slate. Here's my agenda. Now go. But you don't. The minute you walk in, you realize the plate was already full and there's food falling off it. And actually the plate is cracked. And guess what? Here comes the soup. Your agenda quickly, quickly gets waylaid 
by the messiness and the reality of what you actually have to deal with. That's the first thing that you quickly realize. The second thing is time becomes unbelievably precious. And your ability to serially focus on a variety of issues, so you, you break your day up and you, you, you hyper-focus on one thing, then hyper-focus on another, and, and, and doing that fast over multiple different things in a day becomes a real skill. And the third thing is you have to find, you have to find a group of individuals or, or some other way in which you can actually let your guard down. You know, when they say it's lonely at the top, what they mean by that is that you have really no one to shoot shit with. You can't, you can't sort of brainstorm with anyone without always thinking that they are, they're just reacting to what you're saying. And it's, it's almost impossible to do it within the organization. You can sometimes do it with a few people on the board. You have to find that network of people that you can actually say, hey, I have this stupid idea, but what do you think? Or being able to maybe blow off some steam, whatever way you want to do it. Those are all things that I think every entrepreneur sort of figures it out. The other thing you figure out very quickly is that the way in which you care about every detail about the organization is completely unique. As a, as a CEO. And, and really almost no one else can see the entire organization. Everyone else sees one slice of it. So your view is a unique view and don't expect others to be able to have that view because they're not in that job. That's really great insight. I've learned a tremendous amount in this interview and we hang out and I didn't know much of this stuff about you or about how you, how you see the issue areas that we're discussing. As we you know, wrap up, I want to be respectful of your time and the global organization that you steward. Often we get very inspired. We hear from leaders like yourself that have organizations that they steward. Some of us are lucky to work on these issues on an ongoing basis in a way where we feel like we're contributing. But when we look at our own lives and like, how do we make a difference on a day-to-day basis? It can often be really hard, you know, like, am I going to stop ordering Amazon Prime or, you know, do I recycle or does that make a difference? So, I mean, do you have some suggestions for the listeners for the things that they can do to, you know, day-to-day be active as part of the movement? So first of all, it always makes a difference. And even these small things that may be symbolic do make a difference because they play within the psyche. They play a role within the bigger narrative, with the bigger story that you have to tell yourself and the people around you about the world you live in and the community that you're trying to build. So I, I, I personally think that small things do matter, uh, even if, if in some ways they're symbolic. But you can't stop at the small things. So you can't stop at, hey, I'm recycling, but I'm not going to vote. Hey, you know, guess what? I planted a tree yesterday, so I don't need to really worry about the environment or care about, you know, who I'm going to donate to. Kind of have to do all of the above. You know, the, in terms of your own personal life, the, the biggest energy use in your life is, is what you eat and how you prepare it and what you waste. So if you can optimize your food procurement, your usage, your cooking and handling and the waste, just optimize that piece, it's like the biggest, biggest, biggest chunk of energy use in your life. So, so that's one. The second thing is the other stuff that goes around with it. Like how do you run your household? Like do you wash your clothes in cold water, which you should because all these detergents actually can do it now, or do you still use the, the high, hot heat? Just that one little thing can change your energy, you know, use in a day, you know, dramatically, right? So be aware of those things. Be aware of, of how you do that. Get involved. Get involved with local politics, with what's happening in your community, with ha- what's happening in this country, with what's happening around the world. Whatever scale you feel comfortable in, understand the issues, understand who you're asking to represent you and make sure they understand what you care about. And the environment needs to be at the very top of that list because from that comes everything else. It, from it comes the possibility to have a better life, right? From it comes everything. And then the third thing I would say is that 
Find an organization that resonates with you, whether it's in your backyard, whether it's in your region, or whether it's a global organization like Conservation International, but there's lots of others as well. The Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, Wildlife Conservation Society, World Resources Institute, these are all really great organizations. And get involved with them. Because in getting involved with them, you will understand the issues so much better and you will know where to push the hardest. The best advocate for this movement is not me, but it's your listeners. It's people who are actually most unlike me, who are the people we actually need in this movement, in this fight. And so my, what I'm imploring all of you to do is to not sit this out, to learn, to get engaged, to get involved. We will. Sanjan, thank you. I leave so inspired. I love you. Really and truly, man, thank you for your service. It's one thing to wear the robes and to live the lifestyle and to externally identify as environmentalists. It's another thing to dedicate your life to it day in and day out. You're exceptional. And just thank you again for being on the podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.